Yeah, we're going to start a new study tonight. It's a mini-series, okay? It's about as long as a tweet. It's going to be three weeks, okay? It's going to be three weeks, um, and it's, it's by no means meant to be in-depth in terms of the, the, the people that we'll be looking at. I don't know if we've got these screens up here because Chris did a good graphic, and I don't want to just, there it is, God and Kings. And so um, Zach and I, over the next three weeks, are going to take a look at three kings in the Old Testament. It's just going to be three weeks long. We're just going to take a look at three kings. I can tell you right now, it'll be Saul, David, and Solomon. And so um, tonight, we're going to jump into the life and um, work of King Saul. And as I, as I started, it's, it's by no means meant to be in-depth. There's no way you could do the life of Saul, the life of David, the life of Solomon, um, in depth in one night, um, and so we're gonna kind of take that. Anyone ever skipped rocks? You ever skipped like flat rocks before? You ever done that? No one. Awesome. Okay. So there's a few people. All right. Even in the in the pool with my boys yesterday, they've got a little one of those little sponge balls, and we realized that if you hold it under and you soak up all the water and you throw it, it like makes a big splash. But if you squeeze out the water and you throw it, it skips really well, right? Kind of like a rock. And so that's that's kind of what Zach and I are gonna be doing as we go through these kings. It's just sort of. You're going to see we're going to kind of hit like 13, then chapter 15, and then 16, and um, we're going to kind of skip through, but we wanted to um, kind of break it up from the, the textual or the exegetical studies, though there will certainly be, even tonight especially, be a lot of reading through the, the Bible to kind of give you a grasp of what we're talking about, but kind of a three-week break between Romans, which we just completed last week, and then um, Ruth, which we're going to do after this. And so we're going to do Ruth. Anyone... Anyone studied Ruth word for word, gone all the way through it? Anyone? I even haven't, and I'm teaching it, so yay, right? So I've never even done a complete full study of Ruth, though I'm beginning now this week. I'll begin mine, um, and so it's going to be fun to go through Ruth. It's one of those books that often, very often neglected. You know, it's like Esther and some of the other. Why does it always have to be girls? Um, but it's just it's one of those books that a lot of people don't, you know, point to, don't teach a lot, don't go through even in their own studies, though I'm sure lots of um, books have been written about it, but it's not not often addressed, and so um, that's going to be fun. So we're going to go verse by verse, um, for the most part, through the book of Ruth. But again, as I said, we're going to begin God and Kings tonight, and so if you've got your Bible, the, um, what is it, like the ninth book in the Bible or something like that is First Samuel. Whoa. <laughs> Share next time, geez, whoa, you know, it's never appropriate for an alcohol joke that's it, 93-89, Cavs won. Cavs won. Ah, the Warriors won last year, didn't they? Yeah, so they all got rings. I don't weep for grown men getting paid to play a game. Okay. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel. Um, if you want to jump ahead to chapter 13, that's where we'll kind of begin skipping the rock, but I'll, I'll do some, uh, some, some bio work here with, with King Saul and um, and then hopefully get us into a, a nice transition into next week, which will be King David. And so um, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we will get rolling. God, just uh, just as as Justin prayed, would you just um, would you have us focused on the things of you and not the noise, as we're going to see tonight? I, I love that language, and as we take a look at a, a man whose legacy is marked, which could have been marked by. Um, amazing God-honoring service to you, um, but unfortunately took a dramatic turn and is now marked, um, though saved, his, his legacy is marked mainly by disobedience. And so I just pray that you would um, you'd guide us through these texts as we, as we take a look at the, the life of, of King Saul, that we wouldn't look down on him, but that we would be introspective, that we would see our own failings in that, and that we would be called um, tonight to, to not continue to fumble in the ways that... Um, he fumbled into the end of his reign as king. And so would you just do a work in the hearts of your kids tonight? Um, teach us all, myself included. Uh, would you use the text to bring out truth that I, I couldn't even see in the hearts of your children? Would you minister to everyone individually um, tonight? And we just ask that you be glorified. Um, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we're taking a look at God and kings and, and God's relationship to kings, primarily, obviously, in the Old Testament. And so I just want to kind of set the backdrop because a lot of times we get confused. And, and even as Justin and I were talking and praying before, a lot of times we, and I'm, I may be guilty of, of conjuring up this idea that 
that man, the Old Testament's been completed, it's been fulfilled, and like so there's, there's really not the ramifications of the truth contained within it on our present day lives, because Jesus came, that's the Old Covenant, this is New Covenant, everything's different now, it was terrible then, it's awesome now. Um, and so I don't want us to be detached from the fact that there are valuable, timeless truths, though things certainly changed when Jesus came. I mean, the way that God even interacts with his people radically changed when Jesus came. But that doesn't mean that the nature and the character of God changed. It just meant that what Jesus did quenched a lot of what God the Father was partaking in in the Old Testament. And I think we've, if you've been with us for very long or not long at all, you've maybe heard us say that, is that, that you read the Old Testament and God seems angry and he seems like super involved, like a micromanager, right? Like he was just all over the place, clubbing people, knocking people down, talking, burning bush, like doing all. And then all of a sudden Jesus came and it's like, where'd God go? And then it's, just, and don't you kind of feel like that now? Like some people read the Old Testament, like, I wish God was still like that. I'm like, I don't, are you kidding me? Like that, that he would, that Jesus would give the wrath back to God, the father, and that he would go back to that sort of active wrath state. But Jesus absorbed all that. He brought us into a new covenant. The Bible tells us it's the better covenant. But a lot of times we think God is silent now and that his opinions have changed and that, that, that there's no more wrath to be had, that there's, there's no more judgment. It's all fine now. It's why we don't want to read through Revelation. We just kind of figure, well, we'll just stay in the New Testament. We'll stay with Kumbaya, Jesus. Everything's fine. Like, we'll figure it out. And we've, we've kind of lost this, this interaction with God because of the New Covenant. But I want us to remember that these truths that you can see in the Old Testament are every bit as applicable today in the way that God views things, in the way he views sin and disobedience. Though he may not interact with his people, God the Father at least the same. Why? Because there was a new chapter that was turned when Jesus came. It's not that God changed, it's that the story continued. You know, people say it's a big contradiction, like God did stuff in the Old Testament, and then Jesus said, don't do stuff in the New Testament. I said, like, don't, God just straight up killed people, and Jesus is like, turn your cheek, right? And he's like, they're contradicting each other. It's not the same if you open up a book and someone is four years old in chapter one and has two birthdays and in chapter five, he's, he's what? What did I say? Two years old? He's what? Two birthdays? Now he's five or four? Sorry, I'm off. Someone evolves, right? You don't say it's a contradiction. Like the book at one point said he was two and now he's four. It's a contradiction, right? The story continued. Things have changed. Jesus did change things. But this is still the same sovereign God that we're going to see in the Old Testament. It's the same sovereign God today. Does that make sense? So don't detach the Old Testament. It's like, man, just, just don't even worry about that because that's not the God that we're talking about now. It is the God we're talking about. But a lot of the stuff that you see in the Old Testament was absorbed by Jesus, so God the Father doesn't have to pour it out anymore. And then Jesus comes back in the end and actually pours out all the judgment. And so it's not two different gods of the Old and the New Testament. It's the same God, but the story has been continuing. And so, King Saul. As we take a look at God and kings, I just wanted to kind of lay a little foundational work um, in terms of the background of Saul before we get into some of the text. And just know that Zach and I are going to be kind of talking about, in certain respects, um, and I don't want to pigeonhole his sermon into like meta-narratives, like some of the big stories, but a lot of it's going to show you some of the faithfulness, but also the failures of the kings. Okay, the faithfulness and the failures of kings. And why did God, why was God so intricately involved with kings in the Old Testament? And this was Israel's first king that we're going to see tonight. Because in the Old Testament, God was using his people as a nation. As a nation, the nation of Israel. And so when you declare a nation to be God's people, he then sets up national parameters in terms of government, civil law, Okay, how those people as a nation interacted with each other. And it was actually, an, it was an ethnicity. It was a people. Okay, and God's protecting the bloodline because he's also going to bring up a savior through the nation of Israel. But he, he had to interact with them on sort of the, even that civil level. Why? Because he declared the nation of Israel to be his people. So he set up parameters. He dealt with their, their religious practices. So he set up ceremonial practices and said, this is how I want you to honor me on the altar. This is how I want you to present sacrifices. This is how I want you to go through. And there were different tribes that were even had different roles in this, right? Like the Levites were the priests that would offer the sacrifices. The tribe of Benjamin from which Saul came from was not. And so they weren't responsible for bringing the practices. But there was also the moral law in the Old Testament too that showed who God was, things like the Ten Commandments. Those things don't change, 
We don't need the civil law anymore. We don't need the ceremonial law anymore. Why? Because Jesus came. Now he is our king. We're no longer defined by a nation. We're no longer defined by our borders, despite what some Republicans may tell you. We're not, this is not, I'm sorry, this is not a Christian nation. There's no such thing. The Bible calls Christians a nation, but he calls no nation Christian. Does that make sense? So the Bible describes us now as a nation, as a people, as a priesthood. There's no ceremonial law anymore. We don't slaughter goats on Sunday. Why? Because Jesus came and he was slaughtered as our once and forever sacrifice. So we don't need that priestly sacrifice anymore. We have an ultimate high priest who made the ultimate sacrifice. The moral law still remains. That's why there are some laws in the Old Testament that remain true today. Why? Because that was God declaring who he is, and that has not changed. Don't steal. Right? People are like, well, it doesn't say that in the New Testament, so stealing is on, right? We don't just wipe the, the Ten Commandments off the planet. Why? Because those were God declaring who he was to his people. It wasn't part of the civil law. wasn't part of the ceremonial law. It was part of God declaring who he was, the moral law. So those things remain true. But God would bring up kings. Why? Because he's shepherding. He's, he's moving through history a nation, a people. And so he, he, he gives them, he allows them under his decree or theirs to have kings, to have rulers. As we're going to see, they're going to beg for one. And so God is very intimately involved with the kings in the Old Testament, the judges in the Old Testament, the prophets in the Old Testament, because he was moving Israel through history, protecting them, growing them, blessing them, allowing them to go through suffering, to protect the bloodline, to protect the name, to protect what would ultimately point to Jesus coming. And now we're defined by Jesus, not by those laws. We're not defined by our judges. We're not defined by our our king. We're not defined by our laws. We're not defined by ceremonies that we carry on in the church. We're not defined by those things. We're defined by Jesus, an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. That's how you're defined now. But you'll see in the Old Testament, God's very intricately involved. You see a lot of people just take this out of context. They think that God deals with presidents the same way these days. Just utterly confusing the Old Testament and the New Testament, utterly confusing the Old Covenant, what God was doing with that nation. And they'll take Old Testament principles and apply them to a modern-day society. When, to be honest, I don't know if you know this, but America's not in the Bible. It's not. There are truths in the Old Testament, but God's not interacting with kings and leaders the same way that he was in the Old Testament. He still interacts with them, for sure. Right? Does that make sense? So you hear a lot of this, and it starts to really frustrate me. I've got to be honest with you. It really frustrates me when we start to meld Old Covenant today and think that it applies now to america and it doesn't god has a has a call on the christian church as a nation but he doesn't have a call on the the nation of of america now we're called to be restorative in our culture we're called to press into our culture to be involved in every facet we're not called to be separatists well we're a christian doesn't matter you kidding me we should be involved in the workplace we should be involved in in politics we should be involved in every facet of our society but let us not believe that god is interacting with america as he was with Israel. Does that make sense? And so God's intricately involved with some of these kings, for better, for worse, as we'll see. And what's been happening now is that, that Israel has been a tribe, 12 tribes, they've been scattered. Okay? They've been scattered. They're all about, they have no central leadership, no formal government, and the Philistines are their declared enemies. They're declared enemies. They wage war on Israel, the tribes of Israel, Time and time and time and time again. And what we're going to see is this first king arise. His name is Saul. And there's an old cliche that says, what, it's not how you start, it's how you finish, right? That's the cliche. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. And for some of you, perhaps your testimony is, man, you, you started really terribly in your faith, right? For some people, you came out the gate just falling on your face like a two-year-old, Every two minutes, just hitting the ground, stumbling, bloodied, beat up. You get up, you keep going. But then you start to learn to walk, and you get a little more efficient. You're not falling as much. You learn to brace yourself. And at some point, you're beyond walking. You start to jog, and you start to run, and you're getting stronger, and you feel like you're on this upward crescendo in your faith. You then maybe didn't start great, but you're finishing, or at least you believe you're starting to really feel like you're going to finish this thing really well, certainly better than you started. For some people, it's the opposite. For some people come, and they come in a radical conversion. Sometimes it's later in life. Sometimes it's young. They fell on their face at a Christian church camp or at a marriage conference, right? And they come out the gate just blazing. They're hardcore. 
Like everything. They don't watch TV anymore. They don't smoke or drink or chew or hang out with girls that do. Like they don't do any, like they just start going hardcore. And then what happens is that stumbling comes later. They started well, but they didn't finish well. And that's going to be what we see here with Saul. The latter. Saul came out the gate. And he came out the gate well. But instead of his legacy being marked by this, this trajectory of faithfulness, we're going to see this radical turn in his, his reign and his kingship where it's going to begin to be marked by severe disobedience. To be disobedience that would ultimately, though it doesn't unsave him, I don't want you to fascinate on that, like that he's not saved anymore. But I do want to talk again about legacy. I want to talk about, about, about the way that, that the world, the way that we are reflecting God to society ultimately with our legacy. I just read a great article today that about pointing toward de- towards dads because as a dad, I hear so many times a day, Daddy, watch me, Daddy, watch me, Daddy, watch me, Daddy, watch me. And this article from the Gospel Coalition pressed dads, dads to say this to kids, son, watch me, right? And that's what Paul wanted us to do. Is, is Paul said that to himself, hey, watch me. And so to, to change that around to say, watch how daddy operates, watch how daddy reflects God, right? And, and to turn that back in. And as Christians, we should be asking that. If, if we're going to call the world and say, look, hey, look at me, watch me. There's a responsibility with that. Watch me. Because they are watching. We even, you're like, I, don't, I never asked that. Well, too bad. They're watching you anyways. You say you profess a faith in a living God. It's not, can't be found in a grave anywhere. Like every other religious leader on the planet can be found in a grave somewhere. They're going to look at us. They're going to watch. And how we reflect the character and the nature and the values of God means something for our legacy. It means something for our legacy with our kids, with our spouse, with our work, or with our work friends, with other students, family, extended family, friends, acquaintances. Legacy matters. And unfortunately, Saul's legacy took a sharp turn downward, and that's the thrust of his ministry. And so he started out well, but disobedience derailed what was potentially a prolific God-honoring rule over the nation of Israel as their first king. Just a couple nerd words real quick. Um, Saul in the Hebrew is from Shaul. It simply means asked. It means asked. You're going to see why that meaning came about as he was then asked to be king. He was the son of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. You may remember from our study maybe way back in, in Philippians, um, I think Second Timothy, and even again in, in Romans, I think at some point, if not me and myself and Zach, brought up the fact that Paul, as Paul wrote those letters, he boasted at one point in Philippians 3.5, uh, he was going through basically all his requirements. The reason he was able to preach to the Jews was because he was a Hebrew of Hebrew from the stock of Israel, right? And he said, from the tribe of Benjamin. And so Saul came from this tribe of Benjamin. And as I remember saying in the study, it was because this was this, this, this royal tribe that gave Israel its first king, and this is Saul. And so Paul, in his boasting, hearkened back to say, I'm from the, tribe of Israel, or from the tribe of Benjamin, showing them that he was so deeply rooted in God's people that he had the authority to preach to God's people, even in the New Covenant. Saul came from a wealthy family. He was tall, dark, and handsome, right? He was tall, dark, and handsome. It says this in First Samuel nine two. It says there was not one. There was there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. This dude was straight man crush, straight like Ryan Reynolds on roids. Okay, I like Ryan Reynolds. No one else got that joke or cared about it, but. My wife's aware of it. Just relax. And so there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. It says this, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. The tallest dude in town was to hear on him. Right? Like, no problem at the theater. No issues. No stadium seating back then. Okay? Didn't matter. Saul was there. No concert. He could, he could see everything. He was this magnificent man. Absolutely amazing, right? It's like women are like, where are, where are those guys? Saul was tall, dark, handsome, and amazing. 
an amazing specimen. But as you'll see, I hope, I hope you remember this, as you see, that, that, that's going to translate, that's going to push into the life in the, in the ministry or the life in the kingship of David, who's ultimately going to be a type of Jesus. And Jesus came and they said, you wouldn't even recognize Jesus. No one recognized, he was nothing to look at. Jesus was not tall and handsome. He was average at the very best on his best day. Jesus was average. But here comes Saul. Saul's amazing. He's saved. He's part of God's people. There's nothing in any text that says that he wasn't saved or he became unsaved later. So I'm not saying that. I'm not saying he's the anti-God's people guy. But he was an amazing specimen. And he was chosen to lead God's people as they were scattered. And as I said, there were a collection of tribes with no central leader apart from God. God said, I will lead you. They had no central leadership. They had prophets, to be sure, as you're going to see as the book comes from Samuel who was a prophet, but he was not their king. He was a spiritual leader, but he was not their king. And what happens is that Israel forsook God and they began to serve other gods. They were living under constant threat of war, and so they wanted a formal king. They wanted a formal leader because that was par for the course that day. They said, you know what? I, I need something tangible. This whole relationship with God is cool, but like there's scary stuff out there, so I need like one-on-one contact with someone. And that does translate now, because a lot of us are like, look, I get the whole church thing, but like, I, I really need to depend on a pastor mostly. And look, we, you know Zach and I preach pastoral authority, pastoral leadership, shepherding the flock. We're here for you. But so many people do that at the expense of a relationship with God because they want that one. We need this, I need tangible leadership. And the first thing Zach and I do is we, we ask you about your relationship with Jesus. We talk about your prayer life. Right before we get into discipleship and pastoral authority, why? Because we want to see about your relationship first. But you can see Israel starting to do the same thing. It's like, look, there's a lot of scary stuff out there. We need someone we can see and like actually interact with. And you're sort of like, dude, you're in the Old Testament. Like God was actually interacting with you, and they still didn't. It still wasn't enough. A lot of times we wish for that, right? How many wish you could hear an audible voice from God tonight? Right? Anyone? Just me? We have the written word, but how many of you want would just love that? Be like, God, just say one, just like say one thing. And then I'll just be solid in my faith, right? Because I just need to hear, right? We've forsaken that faith because we want something tangible that we can interact with on an earthly level. And it says this in 1 Samuel 8, 7 through 9. It says, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people. This is the old way of saying, give them what they want. Give them what they want. Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. He's speaking to his prophet. Samuel, they're not rejecting you, God says. They have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And look, theologians disagree on this, okay? What I would submit to you is that what you're seeing here is what I would, I would call God's passive will or his passive sovereignty. I, I do believe in a divide in terms of passive wrath and active wrath. We see active wrath in the Old Testament where it's active and passive wrath now where it's being stored up and it's still building, but it's not being actively poured out. I believe the same thing in terms of sovereignty and his will. And so God is passively accomplishing his will, though I even get a little nerdy and then I think, but he's actively choosing passive will. Okay, so you're like, oh brother, right? <laughs> but I think he's actively choosing to not be active in his will, in his sovereignty. And we're going to see later, we're going to see active sovereignty where he makes something happen, right? And so here what he's doing is he's allowing something that we want to happen. Is he sovereign over it? Yes. Could he stop it? Yes. But what is he choosing to do? He's choosing to passively allow the will of the people to come forth. Now, ultimately, he will work all things together for good. And that's actually the thrust. I just gave away the end of the sermon. 
ultimately he will work all things together for good. It doesn't mean everything that happens is good. Believe no man that tells you that. It's called the prosperity gospel and it's devastating. Not everything that happens is good, but everything that happens will be worked together for good. Does, is God so sovereign over everything? Yes, but I believe he is passively sovereign over things. And if you look back to our Roman study where Zach, I keep going back to his study on chapter nine because it was so good, where he took a look at the sovereignty. Sometimes God's sovereignty means letting people have what they want. And so God could have said, no, are you kidding me? You don't get a king. I'm your king and stop the whole thing. But here he says, I'm going to be passive. He's still going to accomplish his will. He hasn't surrendered any of his sovereignty. He will work all things together for good, but he is passively accomplishing his will by letting us have ours. Does that make sense? And you'll see active will or active sovereignty in a bit. But he says to them, heed the voice of the people. Essentially, give them what they want. And I wrote this, I want to reemphasize this. Even in his sovereignty, even amid our disobedience, he's able to work all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. So if you become convicted during some of the three main points that I have, I don't want you to lose hope because of your own disobedience. I want you to gain hope in his ability to work all things together for good. Make sense? I don't want you to get stuck and frustrated and demoralized. Though we can be convicted, we should never be condemned, and it should never paralyze us that we've screwed up. And so in his sovereignty, even amid our disobedience, he's able to work all things together for good. And Saul got off to a good start. It was well and peaceful. He got started around 1010 BC for all the history nerds. He was anointed by king. He was anointed king by Samuel in private first. Why? Because Samuel's sort of like, uh, well, God told me, so that's like pretty much it, right? He's like, well, you're, you're anointed. He doesn't have to go ask the people, but he did. So that was in 10.1, but he did take Saul before the people, and he was elected by the public in 1 Samuel 10, 17 through 24. And, and we know this much to be true as you go through the book. Saul was an incredibly competent military leader. Sans but the mess up with, with David and Goliath, where he became fearful Okay, but again, even in that, God used it because then he brought up David. But apart from that blunder, he was a very, very competent and well-accomplished military leader. He oversaw many victories for God's people. So Saul was set up to have a, a perfect opportunity. The first king, right? You think back to like George Washington, like dude had the opportunity to be in the annals of history forever. He did it pretty well. Right? Wouldn't you, I mean, there's, 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 every guy does some bad things, but George Washington took a nation and, and kick-started the whole thing, and his legacy lives on as a net positive, does it not? Lives on as a net positive. King Saul had the same opportunity to be the first reigning king of Israel, to be marked by God-honoring service, faithful diligence to the one true living God that he declared that he believed in. He had a perfect opportunity. But what happened is that disobedience began to be the mark and the legacy of Saul's kingship. And so that's, that's where I want us to look in, right? Because it's easy to say, what an idiot. Are you kidding me? If I was king, I'd be awesome at it, right? Right? Like we can't even be king over our job. We can't even be king over our spouse, our kids, our companies, our friend circle, our ministries. We can't even exercise godly authority in that respect and we look back on a guy tasked with collecting all the tribes and ruling over them we're like but he didn't get it he disobeyed we've disobeyed in what little authority god may have given you in your life whether you're a new christian or seasoned we at the exact same time we have these bouts with disobedience and so the challenge for us is to take a look at Legacy, will the legacy of our faith be played out with our spouse and our kids and our cohorts and our friends and our teachers and our professors and fellow students? Will it be marked by one of faithfulness to God or disobedience? And so we're going to start in 1 Samuel 13. And I'm going to do a lot of reading. Um, I want us to kind of take away three things. Again, we've just fast-forwarded all the way to chapter 13. I hope you're kind of get the thrust of Saul like, Still, like, super handsome dude, 
right? Awesome military, like was so good at it, okay? First king, lots riding out, lots of responsibility. The people wanted him. He was anointed in private. He was elected in public. God told Samuel, you know, this is going to be the king. And he allowed them to be king. But this is where I want to see the hinge in his ministry because ultimately it does. It, it marked his legacy. And so chapter 13, we'll do a lot of reading. I don't know if you're opposed to reading. Um, if you are, um, you came to the wrong church. Um, and so we're just going to read the Bible. It's a Bible study. I'll throw in little bits here and there, but I want us to start kind of skipping that rock through chapter 13 um, onward. And says, Saul reigned one year. So he had some good times. He had some good times. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Mish. I wish it would be pronounced Mishmash. I think it's Mikmash, but I think it was Mishmash. And in the mountains of Bethel, and thousands, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of these people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison. That's just a military fortitude. Okay, just a military fort garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, we'll go with. I probably pronounced a lot of these wrong. If you're smarter than me, don't hold it against me. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it. Now all Israel heard it, said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand is on the seashore in multitude. Anyone counted sand at Zuma recently? That's about, that's about how many there were. As many as the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Mishmash. Probably wrong, but I'm going with it. To the east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that there were in, they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. First Samuel 10.8, pause there. First Samuel 10.8, Samuel says, you shall go down before me to Gilgal. This is chapters ago. This is years ago prophet of god samuel tells saul you shall go down before me to gilgal and surely i will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings seven days you shall wait till i come to you and show you what you need to do so he says again 13 verse 8 then he waited seven days according to the time set by samuel but he didn't wait the full seven days. It was the seventh day. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. He took initiative, the world would say. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished. You're like, oh, I saw that coming seen movies before i saw that coming on the seventh day he said it's the seventh day i'll do it myself he showed initiative fortitude the world would say god would say that's disobedience and he offered the burnt offering now as it happened as soon as he finished presenting the burnt offering that samuel came and saul went out to meet him that he might greet him and samuel said what have you done Saul said, when i saw that the people were scattered for me and that you did not cut, right? Classic. Like back in Adam in the garden. You gave, you, she, oh, everything was awesome, God, until she came. Shift blame immediately. You get caught at work. Well, she, as you, what you didn't see was that he said, and then she went off, and so I, and immediately the blame is pushed out. We're caught, we're trapped. And so we shift blame. No one here has done that, I know. You're not convicted at all. You're like, man. 
those people are terrible. You shouldn't be doing that. Good thing you've never done that. Good thing I've never done that. What have you done? Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered for me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Mishmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled. Like, I felt good about this. I had initiative. Look, it's like, at least I did something, right, God? At least I did. You said to wait, but at least I did something. That's got to be worth something. I felt compelled and offered the burnt offering. Sam And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That was what was online, his legacy forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord had sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be a commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. God seeks people after his heart. Is that your primary thrust? Is that your default mode? First, what is the heart of God on whatever it is? Give me some examples. Everything in life. There's your example. Everything in life. Have you sought the heart of God first through prayer, through the reading of scriptures, through discipleship, through pastoral authority? Have you sought what God sees and seeks after first because he looks for men and women after his own heart? Verse 15, then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. The first application we have here, we see his first mark of disobedience. Saul didn't wait the full seven days. By the way, he also wasn't a priest. He wasn't a Levite. So he wasn't even legally allowed to offer the the sacrifice. But that's a Bible nerd point. That's not there in the text, though it's true. It's not in the text. We see that the point was that he didn't wait the full seven days. He didn't trust God till the nth degree. And so Saul was at best, at best impatient, at best impatient about the promises of God. There are some here tonight, you have been, we have been so impatient about the promises of God. We want God's promises on our timeline, whether that's work, whether it's living situation, whether it's relationships. You say, my timeline, God, your promise, my timeline. God's heart is his promise in his time because he ultimately cares more about you than you even care about yourself, and you care about yourself a lot, right? Like, I think about me first thing when I wake up, right? I think about me all day. God says, you ain't even close to how much I care about you. You don't even know how many hairs are on your head. I got that on lock, right? We want God's promises on our timeline. He says, my promises in my timeline. And Saul was impatient at best. At worst, he was distrustful and self-reliant. He didn't trust God meant or could pull off what he said he would. And so he became self-reliant. The application is to obey God and seek to do his will rather than your own. Again, I'll go back to this. As life happens, is your first thought, what does God want? What does Jesus want? Holy Spirit, what do you want? Is it about his desire before your desire? Saul in that moment put his desire ahead of God's desire. And it's marked now as a severe severe incident of disobedience. Do you think first, what would God have me do rather than what do I want to do? And I struggle with this just as much as you do. I've said it before. Tomorrow morning when I get to the office and I put on my director of marketing hat, I just start going hard. And God's gifted me, and I think I'm doing exactly what I'm called to do. I'm not called to be on staff at a church. I'm called to be in a secular work environment, starting businesses on the side, 
very comfortable in that. But in that calling, I start to get real self-reliant. In your school, in your work, in your marriage, in your relationships, you start to get real self-reliant. When God says, you know the promises that I have for you, you know that I care for you more than you care for yourself, you know that I have your best interest in mind. Will you trust me to complete it? And so we think, first and foremost, what would God have me do? If Saul had said, what would God have me do? God would have him wait till the end of the seventh day. And so we see that his unlawful sacrifice was a mark of disobedience because he was impatient, he was distrustful, and self-reliant. Now I want to jump ahead to verse, uh, chapter 15. We're going to see that Saul will now be marked by an incident of disobedience when he misuses his power. And so wars are going on. His kingdom, his, his reign is beginning to crumble because his life is now being marked not by faithfulness, but by disobedience. The Bible says that your sin will find you out. It doesn't mean that God is forcing bad things to happen to you. But in the midst of disobeying him, I can tell you this, bad things will happen to you. Bad things will happen to us all, but being outside. I once heard a quote that said, there's nowhere safer inside, of, you know, there, there's nowhere safer place to be than inside God's will. And that assumes that if you're in God's will, you're safe. It's not true. In fact, one of the most tumultuous places in the Bible to be is right inside the will of God as the world caves in and wants to destroy you. So this idea that if you're in the will of God, it's the safest place to be, and then bad things happen, and we're like, then I must be outside the will of God, and he must be punishing me. I've said this time and time again, I'll preach it till I'm dead, or they tell me to stop preaching. God is not punishing you for your sin. God already punished Jesus as your sin. And so for him to say, I punished all sin on the cross, and then you sin, and then he had to dole out an extra dose of punishment because your sin was so bad, says that the cross was not enough. And so that's why we don't see an active wrath being poured out on people anymore. God is not actively punishing anyone for their sin. When, you, when, when something wrong happens, how many of you try to reverse engineer it and say, what have I done to God? Right? We've done this since we were a kid. I remember for no joke, I lost my wallet. I must have been like six because I was still in Chicago. I was like, God, if, if whatever I've done, I will stop swearing if you get my wallet back. Because I assumed that because I had started swearing, I lost my wallet. And God took my wallet from me. And that he was punishing me for swearing. Does he like that I swear? No. Does he call me to, to, to go and sin no more? Of course. But was he actively punishing me for my sin? No. He wasn't. Why? Because he had already punished Jesus completely and fully for that sin. But the Bible does say sin will find you out. I don't know if you know this, but things suck in the world. Anyone notice? Anyone stepped outside your house and realized things suck? It's terrible out there. Why do you lock your door when you leave? Sin, ultimately, at its core. Why do we have cops? Ultimately, at its core. Sin. Why do we have judges and prisons and governments even? Sin. It's terrible. There's cancer. There's abuse. There's divorce. There's adultery. There's rape. There's incest. There's sex trafficking. There's a lot of disgusting things out there. And we think, but if I'm in God's will, none of it will happen to me. It's not true. It's not true. God's will will allow us suffering. But that's the world's doing. It's not God's. And so you're going to see here that Saul is going to misuse power. His, his, his reign is starting to crumble under his disobedience. In chapter 15, it says, Samuel said, again, the prophet said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice, words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Now, some of you are really going to struggle. I don't have time to go into this. Some of you are going to struggle with this chapter. And some of you know why already. And we can go over this another time. And if this stirs you up so much, let me know. I'll personally meet with you to go through this in the coming weeks. Because this is, this is part of the hinge of a lot of people that say, I cannot, I cannot believe, and I certainly could not care for that God. Because he says, now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he ambushed him on the way when they came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, 
infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000. By the way, that's the size of the Marine Corps right now. We're about 200,000 strong. He summons the Marine Corps. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, the Kenites, go, which were a part of this city that he was to attack. A part of these people. He says, go, depart. Get down from among the Amalekites. The Amalekites, sorry. Lest I destroy you with them. He spares them. Again, thinking I'm showing mercy. God said this, but I, I think there's, there's kind of, there's a contingency there. There's a little, we've got to have a footnote, check, you know, B, which is, but, but those guys were actually kind of nice. Okay, God, I, I know you said this, but there's, there's this thing that, that in my life, it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's, an, it's a statistical, I've got to figure out this contingency thing because that's not declared to be, and, and we start to go through these examples, we start to go through these exceptions in God's promises. Go depart, get down from along among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agog, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people, Saul and the people, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatling, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. It's about as bad as it gets in the Bible. God saying, I regret that one. It's about as bad as it gets. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned his back from following me, has not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night, Saul misused his power. A devastating mark of disobedience. By freeing the Kenites. And then it says, Saul and the people spared Agag. And if you can see, let's see, I didn't have this in my notes, but I read through it. Oh, uh, look down to verse 19. Samuel confronts him on it. He says, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil? And do evil in sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on mission, which is the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people. What did the text say? Saul and the people. But the people, he says. But the people. The modern translation of that, it's a lie, right? It's a lie. He's flat out lying. Again, good thing no one here lies. Or else we wouldn't, you know, we'd have to internalize this. Good thing no one here lied this week. Right? No one lied. No one's going to lie this week. Nothing to learn from this, right? You're like, keep, move on. Stop it. <laughs> he lies, but the people took the plunder. Sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. So does God care as much about what you, your little offerings? What does God care about? It, the question is rhetorical. God cares first and foremost about what he says. His name is on stake. He is ferociously after the glory of his own name, not ours. And so it's rhetorical. 
Does he have as great a delight in burned offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. You hear that? That's, by the way, still true. It's not like, oh, Old Testament, that was harsh. To rebel from God, he says, that's like witchcraft. For the rebellion is as sin is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And look, Saul gets repentant. He realizes he's trapped. So I'm not saying he's unsaved. It's not saying that he's unrepentant. It goes right here. He's lied, but he's still repentant. He says, then Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned and I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. We do the same thing. We fear what friends will say. We fear what coworkers will say. We fear what our spouse may say. We fear what our extended family and acquaintances may say. More so than we fear disobeying what God has said. More so. He says, I have feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. And you have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. He misused his power for selfish gain. Now, look, some of you may think, I have no power in my life, so it doesn't matter. Right? You think it doesn't really much matter? He misused the power God granted him for personal gain. God may have chosen Saul because he was humble, but over time that humility was replaced by a self-serving and destructive pride that destroyed his rule. The call on us is not to misuse any power God has given in us in our life. Whether that is power and authority, and a lot of you, again, don't see yourselves in positions of authority. But in your work life, in your student activities, in your family, in marriages, in being a sibling, in being a friend and a steward of your friends' circles, in ministry, in relationships, where God has called the Christian to be on track with his desire, we have a calling of a power that a lot of times we begin to use then selfishly. And so we're called not to misuse any authority God has granted. I think of this, I take this hard, seeing if I misuse any of my authority at work. Do I slack off at times because I'm the director, because I'm at the top of my department? And apart from the CEO above me, I don't have too much oversight. Do I use that to make sure everyone's working and not work myself? Do I do that in my marriage? Do I know that I'm the head and therefore I can get away with things and that my wife being beautifully submissive, which isn't a scary thing? Do I abuse that authority? Do I do that with my kids? Do I, do I get away with things that I call them not to get away with? And so we see these different areas in our life and our ministries. Do we exercise authority? Do we have any sort of power or influence that we then use for selfish gain? And this is one of the things that marked Saul's life of disobedience. And finally, we're in For Samuel 15, as we just read, we see that he led selfishly. He lied. He said, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. We're called to lead as God intends us to lead. Now, I'm going to give you a New Testament verse, but I want you to work with me on this. 1 Peter 5, 2 through 10, it says this, and this is a call to pastors, but I would show you that it extends also to all Christians. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive your crown of glory that does not fade away. Now I get this is a call to pastors and elders, but the characteristics extend to all. Does anyone have a, would anyone say, yeah, but my boss shouldn't operate like that? Right, my secular, that my, my dad, my mom shouldn't operate like that, that they, that they shouldn't serve as an overseer, not by compulsion, but because they want to. There's nothing worse than working for someone that's there because they think they have to be, right? It's one of the things I love. I'm so glad in my time in the military that it was not a draft. That's why I never want us to go back to a draft. I do not want to serve along some dude that has to be there. I want to serve in combat next to guys that want to be there, right? We think that's a good thing, right? We should want to serve others. We should not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor being lords over those that are entrusted to us. I shouldn't lord over my kids, right? 
but being examples to the flock. These are characteristics called as pastors, and he's exhorting us specifically, but also um, Christians in general, because that was 1 Peter 5. And if you pull back three chapters in 1 Peter 2, he says that all Christians are called to be a royal priesthood. All Christians. You may not have the title pastor or elder, but all Christians in your circles of influence are called to be a priesthood. And so you can take from the call on pastors specifically and say, are you doing the same in your spheres of influence as you lead friends, as you lead family, as you lead a spouse or a boyfriend, a girlfriend, as you lead at work, as you lead in school, as you lead in ministry, as you lead in service to the church? Are we leading selfishly as Saul did, marked by disobedience, lying, pushing blame, amassing power, trying to reap the benefit without the responsibility Saul was marked now by selfish leadership, and ultimately it was to the end. Now, now jump with me real fast to um, chapter 16. This is the last part of the rock. It's about to sink as it skips across the water. Verse six, uh, uh, chapter 16, look down to verse 14. Now, David has been, God, is, uh, God is already transferring leadership. He's already changing leadership. Zach's going to go into David next week. This is that transition that you're going to see. And in verse 14, it's very, it's very curious here. This is where I want to show you God's active sovereignty, his active will to accomplish what he wants. It says, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord. Some of you struggle with that. You struggle with God's sovereignty. You struggle with how God gets things done. In now his active sovereignty, he's not just allowing something to happen. He is causing something to happen. But he's going to work it together for good. Watch. He actively then, from the Lord, this distressing spirit troubles him. And Saul's servants said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you and seek out a man who is a skillful player of the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hands. When this distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. See, Saul was sinking into deep depression. Deep depression. And what they were finding for him was a man that could alleviate that depression. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the servants answered and said, Look, I have, a, I have seen a son of Jesse, in Bethleh- a Bethlehemite, who is a skillful, skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Little guy. The meek and mild servant. David. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And I'm not going to give away anything that Zach is going to teach on next week. But sometimes you're going to see the kings for for worse in the Old Testament, for worse, that that show us this picture of, of what we're called not to do. And sometimes you're going to see kings that rise and are called from God that show us what we are to do. And Saul's legacy, now marked by disobedience, allowed by God to happen, you're going to see as we thread into next week, you're going to see now that 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 is what allowed, this situation is what allowed then God to transfer this position of leadership into this meek and mild shepherd that God would now call to Saul. So God ushers in David. And again, not sealing anything from Pastor Zach next week, but he would become a powerful type pointing to Jesus. A type is an Old, it's an Old Testament figure, person, or institution that directly points forward to Jesus. And so Saul's kingship is crumbling to show us that, that authorities allowed to exist by God will ultimately crumble. But guess what will happen? God will ultimately use it together for good. Why? Because he will bring in the true Messiah. And so again, I want us to just simply ponder this, that God calls us to be obedient, to seek his will rather than our own, 
to not use the power that we have for selfish gain and to lead selflessly, not selfishlessly. Knowing that God will work all things together for good, redeeming our mistakes ultimately for his own glory. Amen? Let's pray and go into a time of worship. You've let me go long again, and so we'll, uh, we'll get into singing. Um, God, thank you. Thank you for your sovereignty over Saul. Thank you for the, the, the truths that we can identify with, because let's be honest, I, as, as Justin prayed before when we were together outside, I would love to identify mostly with David, the, the king we'll look at next week, but in actuality, I probably mostly identify with Saul. Is that I'm strong in my faith at times, but man, I am marked by such severe droughts, such severe disobedience at times. But that's, that doesn't cause me to lose my hope anymore. I understand the call on my life to reflect you, but I also understand that even among, even amid this mess, Jesus, you are working this together for good for those who love you are called according to your purpose. And so my, my hope is not lost in my mistakes and the gospel is not derailed in my mistakes. I pray that you challenge your people tonight and I pray that you call us to be on mission, serving you obediently, selflessly, for your glory because we know that Jesus is being ushered in and that all things will work together for good. We love you. Can't wait to see you again. In Jesus' name, amen.